everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Welcome everyone to our Thursday session that we call Talk with Wayne. And um, this is just a broad, no specific subject matter, um, talking every week about subjects that are of interest to me and to, to you and, and to the world. Um, been taking advantage of AI and looking up topics that are pressing um, in any given week. And uh, we've talked a little bit more about those. And, and then mainly, I want to answer questions from all of you. So if, uh, if any of you have got questions uh, or comments, please put them in. And also, if any of you want to be uh, uh, unmuted, we'll, uh, we'll have you come on and, uh, and chat with us. So anyway, um, again, I am in Detroit, Michigan. And I am at the National Brownfields Conference. And Mark, do a search in, on another tab. Leave this up and do a search and see what you can find for uh, National Brownfield Association. And we'll show them what that, what that entity is. And so the word brownfield was originally um, used in Europe in England and throughout Europe to mean a property, a building that was built on top of where there had previously been a building. So that was what the word was used for. So in old cities, for example, um, an old could mean even New York City, um, where again, um, this is a horrible, uh, example, but it, you'll understand it, where the World Trade Centers were um, that came down with the, the, the attack, essentially. Um, they've now rebuilt, and there are new uh, high-rise buildings there. That would be um, a brownfield type of a building, where one building is built on top of others. In places in Europe, obviously, London, for example, there are lots of buildings that maybe there might have been 10 previous buildings that were underneath where a current building might be built. Well, back about 30 years ago, um, it's a train coming over, so I'm right by a train track. About 30 years ago, um, the, uh, the, the group that I was working with and doing uh, different things, and it was the what was called the Eric Group, you know, Environmental Risk Insurance Company. Um, we started providing insurance to um, environmental insurance to entities that were developing in contaminated properties, and we started to get lots of interest from the people that were in those situations to uh, to have us us meaning senior people at the Eric Group um, to come and work for them. And in 1992, 
we sold the Eric Group, Environmental Risk Insurance Company, to a, a big insurer out of Germany called Zurich. And a whole bunch of us decided we did not want to go to work for Zurich. I, I was one of those. So in 1993, I think it, it the sale to Zurich lasted for about six months. And in 1993, I was essentially um, out of a job. Although I, I had done consulting and really I wasn't, I didn't have a job with the Eric Group. I was running the environmental side. And so again, I made some profit from that sale to Zurich and, and literally had to be thinking about what was going to be next in my life. And I started doing environmental consulting again and had a couple of guys from Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, with a partner that they also had in the Denver area that was just getting started with them. Um, oh, go back to that Verdantist that was screaming. Is that just scream, streaming there, Mark? Oh, it'll come back. Don't worry about it. Um, right. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But um, these, these three guys, Randall Clark and Tom Darden and John Mazzarino, came to me and said, did I want to be a partner with them in a, a new company developing, buying and developing environmentally contaminated properties? And I said yes. And I became the fourth partner and founder of what was called Cherokee. And we've talked about that before past. Anyway, at Cherokee, we then started to look at and acquire properties. The problem that we had was that we, we didn't have enough cash in our own coffers and our own um, bank accounts to buy some of the, the properties that were the size that we were interested in. So we went out to raise some money, which we did. And in 1996, we raised enough money um, with the help of a company in San Francisco called Fairlawn, um, which is was founded by a, a billionaire whose name you've probably heard, named Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer ran for president back in 2020 and uh, lost to Joe Biden in the Democratic uh, primary circumstance, and so he dropped out. But anyway, Tom Steyer, um, we went to Tom and his group, and we raised some money that allowed us to then go out into the marketplace. So anyway, um, at the same time, um, we were doing, as we started doing this, we needed to have a name for these properties, what we would call them. And we started calling them brownfields. And I don't remember why we chose that word. I think we all knew that in Europe that that word meant, like I said, in Europe and in England, that it was a building built on top of where another building had been previously. It had nothing to do with environmental contamination, but we decided that it was a good word to use in the United States to describe um, a, a property that had environmental contamination or that had the perception of environmental contamination. So we used that, uh, we decided that would be the right name. Uh, we also decided that we ought to form an organization um, that we did form that we called the National Brownfields uh, Association. And, um, and that association should hold an annual conference and it, we would invite 
the very small number of people at that time that were working in this field and and would have speakers and talk about all the types of things that were uh, that were important. Well, anyway, we held our first conference in 1996, and um, and there have now been 19 more since then. This is the 20th since 1996, and if you do the math on that, you realize that we didn't have one every year. It's, they've averaged about one every 15 or 16 months since then, and they've been held all over the United States. Um, and this is the second time that it's been held in, in Detroit. Well, that day that we decided, that we all decided that it was a good thing to do is to form that kind of, a, of an organization. Uh, when we finished the meeting, uh, my partner, Tom Darden, and I were walking out of the conference room. And Tom said to me, he said, Wayne, I don't know why we need to have an organization and have a conference because we won't even get 100 people to go to it. Well, this conference here in Detroit um, has got about, and you don't know the exact numbers, but about 3,000 people at it. And the biggest one of these that has ever been held was actually the one that was held at Denver in 2005. And so nine years into this process, and there were 10,000 people uh, at that one that was held in Denver. So it, this has become a bigger, issue and a bigger business, a bigger industry, really. So now in the United States, brownfields is an industry. And in that industry, there are companies and people who buy properties that have environmental problems. There are consultants that work with those companies and provide them with all kinds of services. There are insurance companies that provide insurance to those companies that are buying those properties. But more importantly, there are agencies. Um, the US EPA, um, every state in the country's um, environmental agency, every state has a different name for it. Um, there are law firms. It, it's a huge industry. It's a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And again, what has been streaming here are the names a bunch of the sponsors for this for this conference, this Brownfields conference. And as they go across, I'll point out a few of them just to give you a concept of what those companies do. SCS Engineers was formed a little bit before I formed ATC. I know the founders. Atlas is the, the now successor company of ATC. Um, they bought ATC, and if you guys have listened to me speak other times, you know that back before, way before this industry started, the brownfield industry, I formed a consulting firm called um, called ATC. Um, Berdondis is now a company that used to be called Hull, and uh, Hull is based in Ohio, and they were it was founded by John Hull. A lot of these companies that you see names, <coughs> excuse me, Eagle, by the way, there, E-G-L-E, is the environmental department, state environmental department here in, uh, in, in Michigan, which is where we're at. Um, and then there's other, just Cisco's is a food service company. I'm not even sure why they're involved with this, but I'm going to stop here for a second. And, and 
going to talk a lot more about the brownfield industry. And I'm going to take the computer out because there is a barge going by right now. And I'm going to turn it around and show you the Detroit River. And Mark, please tell me if you guys can see this. I'm going to walk out back toward that window like I did before. Yeah, we can see the barge. Yep. Can you see this ship? Yes. This big ship? Right. Really and that's cool. a that's a freight barge that's going across. This is the Detroit River that's right down here below us. That's Canada over there, and that is Windsor, Canada. So you can see the Canadian flag. And the most prominent building there says Caesars. <laughs> and that's because gambling is legal across the row, across the high, in there in Canada. It's not here in Detroit. Caesars is a big name in the gambling world um and i think worldwide even but um so that's where we're at that is a um a, a ship there that you're seeing that is a uh, riverboat and the people that are coming going to this meeting here some of them have chosen to go out to dinner tonight on that and so you might even see some people walking up towards it because it at uh, 5.30 local time, again, here in Detroit, we're two hours later than in Denver, um, which is where we do most of these sessions from. Um, and, and so the, 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 the dinner is going to be at 5.30, and I am not going to it tonight. Um, and Aaron and I are going to go out to dinner ourselves here just because... Um, one, I had the webinar to do, and second, um, we've been with people all day, and we're probably ready to wind down a little bit. Um, so, Mark, scroll down that page a little bit to show a little bit more of this this website. So, this is Detroit. That's actually showing pictures of a little view of Detroit there. Um, tell me, Mark, if there are any questions that people have that I'm not looking at as we get as we keep going. Yeah, I see uh, a few questions here. Okay. So, um, Alicia, has, uh, okay, she has one. Uh, before that, Francis asks, how can we promote art-saving companies like LP, LPPFusion.com? Uh, so in about five years, if all goes well, they will be able to produce power for less than one cent per kilowatt hour. I'm looking at the question here. I just want to make sure I get it right so I can answer it here. So how can we promote earth-saving companies like IPP Fusion? Uh, Mark, look that company up.com and let's look at their website okay. in just a minute here. About five right. years, if all goes well, they will be able to produce power for less than one cent per kilowatt hour. Just in context, since probably some of you at least um, don't even pay attention to what you pay for electricity, but throughout most of the United States at least, I'm guessing, so don't quote me on this, and I don't have any statistics, but I'm guessing that the average rate that people pay for electricity is about 13 to 15 cents a kilowatt hour. 
I know in California, at least in a number of places, it's as high as 25 cents a kilowatt hour. We're very fortunate in the Rocky Mountain area and um, in Colorado and also in South Dakota, in the Western part, and also in Idaho. Those are the three places that I have some knowledge of to pay uh, as little as uh, eight cents a kilowatt hour. That's some of the cheapest electrical costs in the country. So I give that context because if somebody can produce electrical power in a large scale so that it could be available for, for people in a broad array of locations, at one cent a kilowatt hour, that's huge. So Mark, do you have that site up that I can look at here? Minimize. Yeah, it's in, I think this is the one. Okay. So IPP Fusion. Um, it looks like it might be hydrogen-based power, which is fairly cool. Um, click on the about mark up there, and let's look at that real quick. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's hydrogen, but is it? And maybe. Maybe Francis knows this. Is this nuclear power or is this using liquid hydrogen as a fuel source? Obviously not knowing anything about it. Just like, it looks like it's looks like it's not it's not nuclear. It's like it is using hydrogen. Click over on the technology mark and on that, which is right there on that, the, right below the name of the company. Let's see if it describes their technology. Although, boy, it's talking about fusion. So, fusion is a nuclear reaction. Francis, tell us, tell us in a in a, in a message whether is this a nuclear process? Just nuclear fusion. While we're like, while we're waiting for your answer about that, or if somebody reads it on the website here, I'm just not able to focus on it. The, the letters are too small. Um, you know that the the Chinese are already doing nuclear fusion, nuclear power in reactors that are smaller than this table. I'm gonna turn this around again, and you can. See the table that I'm sitting at. All right, it's a three feet tall and eight feet long. There are what they call small-scale nuclear reactors that the Chinese are starting to get a huge amount of their power from. Um, that are, and I doubt that we know any commercial name of the companies that they that they are, but they're doing. They're already doing something probably like this. Um, Mark, do you see an answer from Fran from Francis there? Is this nuclear fusion? Yes, I am looking at it. So yes, Francis says it is fusion power, fusion of hydrogen and boron. It produces uh, helium and and power. Yeah. And and does it have any of the risks? Does it have explosive risk, Francis? Just answer us in the 
text if you want, or we can unmute you and you can talk. No, it does not. Okay, so it's not no. the same as as explosive fusion. All right. Well, anyway, I I hope we're doing a lot of things out there to um, to to figure out how to produce cheaper power, and this could be awesome. I don't have any opinion on it other than just that. We need to do what we can do, in my opinion, to find alternative power sources um, from fossil fuels and from, um, well, really from fossil fuels. And, and I think I, I've mentioned in several of the last several weeks that we're, we're shutting down coal production here in the US for, for fuel. 95 of the current 256 coal-powered power plants in the United States will be closing in by the end of 2024. That will leave less than half of the ones that are out there. So we are scaling down on the use of coal for power production, electrical production, and we're doing, you know, we're not increasing in the U.S. at least the amount of natural gas that we use at this point in most locations. And we're not, we haven't had a nuclear power plant built in years. So we got to figure out something. Um, and hydroelectric is, is a great source in places where you have it. And in many places it's not being used to the level that it could be. So, um, any kind of new production like this one that this IPP fusion has could be awesome. I, I haven't studied it, so I don't really have a, a great uh, opinion. But, so Alicia asked, what is the future of fusion? Well, again, it's not a subject that I'm at all an expert on. Any of the rest of you want to weigh in on your thoughts on that? You can do so. Uh, if it's if it's fusion involving uh, an explosive type of circumstance, right now it doesn't appear the U.S. is doing anything to move forward with it. So I don't know what the future is. If this is a much less controversial power making operation with fusion, then I would assume it's pretty good. I don't know what's going to limit it. I, I don't know enough about it, though. So it's not something that I, I can give a very good answer on. Certainly something we, we should get a speaker on. Maybe we can find the principals of this company and, and get them to come and speak for us. All right. So uh, Alicia also says, most experts agree that we're unlikely to be able to generate large-scale energy from nuclear fusion before around 2050, and cautious might add on another decade. And I don't know where you get that, Alicia. I hate it when people, kind of, I, I'm sorry if I'm gonna be critical of you right now, but I am. Uh, anytime somebody makes a statement like that, which is most experts believe anything, I don't even care what it is, I'm skeptical of it. And my question's gonna be, so my questions to you right now is, tell me who those experts are. Don't just make a blank statement about most experts agree. 
because I think back in May of 2020, there were lots of statements made by a name I'm not going to mention. Well, I am going to, by Fauci, that most experts agree about a lot of things related to COVID. And now, guess what? You talk to those most experts, and they didn't agree to any of it. <laughs> that was a total false statement being made. And it's, it's been, because of that, Fauci's facing criminal indictments because of making statements like that. So I'm, I'm very skeptical about a most experts agree on any kind of a statement without listing who those experts are and what they say. Um, I, I told you I'm not an expert about nuclear power at all. I would think, though, if our government decided that we should be producing more nuclear power than we are, that it wouldn't take till 2050 to produce it. <laughs> that frankly, you could have a plant up and running next year. Um, and that's not most experts saying anything. It's Wayne Dorband, one person saying one opinion about the fact that if as a country and, and, and our government and the people in the industry decided that we needed to increase our use of nuclear power, it could happen overnight. It, it's technically, we've obviously done it for 50 years and we don't have to worry about knowing any of the technologies. And it's just a matter of getting the regulation, the regulatory process in place, and it could be done very quickly. So I'm curious about why most experts agree that we're unlikely to be able to generate uh, large-scale energy from nuclear. The Chinese already are. So why can why would we not be able to do it if they can? So I don't know who those experts are that agree on that. Nuclear fusion won't arrive in time to fix climate change, but it could be essential for our future energy. energy. So again, pretty broad statement, Alicia. Not one that I agree with at all. So, but again, not something that I um, necessarily, in my opinion, means a heck of a lot. I'm not an expert by any means. So I'd love to hear other people's opinion about nuclear fusion. Um, and again, it is fission that we use right now for most of our uh, nuclear power. And, and again, they, they could, that could be a use. So LPPF fusion is stating they have a fusion process which has not been demonstrated to produce more energy than consumed today. Fusion, fission is what our current nuclear, yes, that's what, that's what I just said. Fission is what our current nuclear um, reactors utilize and is actually a great solution to an energy transition. Yeah, and, and I'm agreeing with Larry about that. Um, 
Let's see. Back. We've got lots of comments. Thanks, everybody. This is cool. I love it when lots of you are weighing in. Uh, and again, Alicia, I, I think you I have no idea whether you're right about the timing for nuclear fusion, whether it could happen soon enough. Um, and I don't know who Philip Ball is, so that's a that's who you were quoting there about that. See a scientific American like again, I I don't have time to look at that right now. Wouldn't be a bad article. Wouldn't be a bad topic for us to go through at some point in the future. Great discussion. Put in a, a, a source for green hydrogen. I'm just going back up through this. So Alicia asks, are you familiar with the ITRC, Interstate Technology Resource Consortium? They're involved with Superfund Science. Yes, and that group is here. Actually, I think the tour that Aaron and I went on today, um, the people that were organizing that, we went down and looked at a, a site that um, was a previous um, industrial site um, south of Detroit on the, actually wouldn't be south, it'd be west Detroit on the, the river, on the Detroit River that um, was a manufacturing site and it's been converted to a um, wildlife uh, reserve. It's actually the only, Aaron, tell me if, nod to me if, if I'm right or wrong. It's the only international one in the United States, meaning it's actually jointly owned, it's jointly operated with Canada and the US. There's no other international ones. In North America, not just in the US, all North America. Uh, it would just be Canada and the US, but. Well, Mexico. Yeah, Mexico too. Yeah. Somebody said they're really surprised about that though, because of uh, like in Alaska even. Left it, wouldn't it touch Canada? Sure. Oh, yeah. There's lots of places that borders Canada. Canada, yes. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I'm just familiar with it because I, I heard about it today. I don't know exactly what kinds of things they do. Uh, this is one that I can give some, I think, somewhat relevant professional thought on, which is. Any thoughts about urban farming on brownfield sites? There are multiple sessions here at this meeting about urban farming um, and brownfield sites. I strongly feel like we need to figure out how to do it in the future, doing it in some places now. The challenges are if you're dealing with contaminated soils, then that's a problem in an urban site. 
So you'd have to figure out how to either clean those soils before you use them to grow edible uh, plants in them, um, or you'd have to use clean soils that you got from somewhere else, which is easy to do, by the way. So um, soil is typically the amount of clean soil that's available to grow plants in a farming scenario is typically not a problem. So if you were doing urban farming, and let's define a little bit about what urban farming is. Is it indoor um, or is it outdoor? And if it's outdoor, where would it be, you know, in an urban setting? Is it going to be in current parkland circumstances? Is it going to be on rooftops, which is possible? Um, anyway, if it's on rooftops, let's just say it's that, or it's on parking lots or something, um, then, or it's indoors. Any one of those three, you're going to have to bring your soil and your media and I'm using the word soil, but it, it doesn't have to be what we often think about as just soil. It just has to be some kind of a media that a plant can put its roots down into. So it could be gravel, it could be particles of, of, of plastic. That I mean, there's all kinds of things that could be the media. Um, anyway, the challenge is the brownfield site as we define brownfields here in the U.S., contaminated or perceived contaminated, the only challenge is that we'd have to be able to make sure the soils that were used were clean, so that the plants were weren't becoming contaminated, having toxic chemicals in them because of the soils that they were grown in. Lots of cool comments today, everybody. Thank you so much for that. Let's keep going and look at some more here. Any thoughts on the fate of phytoremediation for the forever chemicals like PFAS? Well, um, I was at one of the PFAS sessions, but PFAS is the most talked about new problem or issue at this meeting by far. If this meeting would have been in 1981, the most talked about new issue would have been asbestos. In about the late 90s, early 2000s, the newest issue was lead. So it's really typical that in the environmental industry, over time, something new comes is is found that is an environmental problem. And I've said this many times, so I apologize for repeating, but the way we react in the United States, at least, to environmental problems, I'm doing it the wrong way, is like a pendulum. The way our government reacts, the way the public reacts, which is that when we first hear about an issue, the pendulum swings way over to one direction. And usually the reaction that's extreme like that causes the regulators, I look like I'm saluting by the way, to then do something really dramatic in terms of their 
regulations. So I just remember these other issues I just mentioned, and I'll tell you what happened with uh, with the, the ones that I talked about: asbestos, uh, lead, and what was the third? Asbestos, lead. Well, PFAS is now. Um, now there was a, well. There was another one that was in there that I didn't mention, which is, well, formaldehyde was in there. Formaldehyde is another one that, that occurred during that time frame, um, becoming something. The initial response is typically ban it, just ban it. <laughs> so asbestos was banned soon after it was first determined that it was causing environmental problems in the early 80s. Um, formaldehyde was banned. Uh, when it was first determined, it was potentially causing environmental problems. There's another chemical that's less known. Um, it's called EDB, ethylene dibromide, that was banned when we first determined that it was causing some problems. PFOS has been banned <laughs> now. Um, however, they're not quite sure all the places that it's even used right now. So banning it is a little more difficult. And and then there's even a stronger reaction that has occurred with PFOS than occurred with those other problems that I mentioned. Asbestos. Oh, I didn't mention lead. Um, lead was was banned in certain building materials um, once it was determined that lead was a problem. Paint, for example. However, we use lead in a whole bunch of other things. So lead has not was not initially completely banned just because it was so necessary in so many things. But um, anyway, that extreme reaction typically goes back to the middle over time and becomes what ultimately is the norm. So asbestos, for example, um, asbestos was banned in building materials and it still is, but it's used in other things still used in brake linings, still used in, in some kinds of materials, but not in building materials. And that's probably prudent. And we can, we can cover asbestos, use the word encapsulate, so that it's not as harmful um, and, and not harmful at all, really. You can encapsulate it. Um, by the way, there was a talk today, this is for Aaron to hear, that I wished I could have heard. And, um, which is uh, a PCB in the air in a school system up in Vermont. And uh, again, airborne PCBs, and that's another kind of chemical um, that has, is a, a problem, but, and certainly not banned yet in anything because it's not been ever decided that it was just this horrible chemical or problem like asbestos. And, other things like PFAS now. Um, but our reaction as a culture to environmental issues that are determined, that are thought to be problematic is usually very extreme, and then it comes back to the norm. PFAS, I think we reacted in a very strong and extreme way, and it wasn't by necessarily banning it, because the problem was historic. Um, and it was caused by its use in so many different things. It's used in Teflon, for example. It's used in, in all kinds of 
waterproof clothing or waterproof waterproofing that's used on clothing. Um, it, and there's several reasons it's called the forever chemical. One is that, that we just used it for, uh, forever in the past and it's everywhere. And second, it is very persistent. It doesn't go away. It, it's, it, it, once it's gotten into water or into soil or into our blood or into our skin or into our brain, it, it's very difficult, if not impossible, in certain circumstances to get rid of it. So that was, that's why I called the forever chemical. I have, I'm not enough of an expert on its toxicology to give a really strong opinion, but I will give this opinion, which is I think over time, we're gonna see that we have overreacted in the short term with PFAS and increase the levels that are, that are allowed in water, drinking, drinking water even. Right now they've set, they're, they're set at ridiculously low levels that are almost impossible to achieve. And here at this meeting, it was pretty heavily, oh, I got to show you something real quick. I'm going to turn it around. Uh, Mark, they're looking for you, buddy. I don't know if you can see what's out there in the water. Mark, they're coming for you. That, that's, a, that's a Detroit police boat. <laughs> I've seen a police boat in a long time. I don't know if you guys saw that. That was just kind of fun. Um, but PFOS is... is highly discussed now at meetings like this and on brownfield circumstances because um, it's become this new issue. And, and five years ago, we didn't even know it was a problem. We, and we, it's been here forever. <laughs> it's been used in fire suppressants on runways, for example, at airports for a hundred years, as long as we've been flying, flying planes. Um, it's been used in, in, like I said, waterproofing by companies like 3M and others for forever also. Um, so let's see, back to Alicia's thoughts and question. Any thoughts about the fate of phytoremediation for the forever chemicals? I think phytoremediation is a wonderful remedial approach for a lot of organic chemicals, which PFOS is, in soils. And 10 years ago, if you were to come to a conference like this, I almost guarantee there would have been four or five, if not more, talks, discussions by professionals about phytoremediation. I don't think there's one on the agenda. I think there was one. And there may be one about, I think there's one about mycology. Okay. Radiation uh, yeah, mycology is using uh, fungal types of sources, so mushrooms and fungus. But it's minimal. It, it is not highly accepted. It's not highly used. Why? I don't know, because I think it would be excellent. And there's the, the work that was done years ago, I think, have, has shown that. But it's not highly used. So. Um, but I, I don't think it has anything to do with whether it works or not. It, it must have to do with cost, must have to do with something because it can, can be very effective. So my thoughts are we should use it more, a lot more than we do. 
together to talk phytoscreening and modeling vapor intrusion and phytoscreening VOCs with insect-induced plant gals. Yeah, but that's for screening. That's not for phytoscreening. Not it's not radiation. Okay. Um, how can we promote Earth saving company. Okay, no, we, we talked about that. Somebody one. didn't mention it though. Oh, it, it's going to get mentioned because people, it's being used. I mean, but it's, it's not something that has been used to any great amount. We still, uh, this has been something, again, if anybody who's been around me listening to me talk for any period of time knows that one of my big pet peeves about this whole brownfields industry is that we're still doing most of the things we do to clean up problems the same way we did 50 years ago. Why haven't we advanced more? I'm not an innovator. That's not what I do. That's not my, my expertise or strength. So I'm not the one that would be innovating and coming up with new things. But there should be people out there coming up with new things. And we haven't. We, we use the same methods today to remediate soils and groundwater that we used 50 years ago. 50 years ago. So an, an example. Um, so anyway, um, this is from, who is this one from? Hello from Clover. I think that was Alicia. Alicia always gives us a ton of, of resources. So. She goes so many that it's hard to keep up. I'm just looking through the, the different ones. Yeah, it was Alicia. Alicia, thank you as always. Glacier erosion. She's got all kinds of. Alicia, you you uh, you're awesome. Okay. Am I caught up, Mark? You seen any other questions that I'm missing? I think pretty much covered. Okay. Uh, Alicia just sort of validated what I was saying about China. Let me just read. China has been steadily expanding its nuclear power fleet to provide stable, reliable, clean baseload electricity for its growing economy. China's latest five-year plan sets the 2025 target of 70 gigawatts of nuclear capacity. I don't know how that compares to what they currently have. Um, 70 gigawatts of nuclear capacity as well as 3,000 gigawatts of total power generating capacity from all fuels, which would say that that nuclear capacity is not a, not a very large percentage of that 3,000. And the source of that was from Forbes. Um, Uh, comment maybe in the urban farms consider using cover crops uh, in the non-growing season 
to phytoremediate the contaminants. Yeah, anything related to phytoremediation, I think, is a great idea. Um, and we just aren't doing very much of it. So somebody, some very young scientist or, or innovator or ecopreneur, because it's going to take a lot of energy, should go out there and do something with it. But it's not being done. Check out, check out Greg Peterson and his Urban Farm website and podcast. He has two locations, one in Phoenix, another in Asheville, North Carolina. I think he presented speed in the past. I don't remember, Alicia. We've had lots of speakers, as you know, uh, but he'd be awesome, it sounds like. And we will check him out. I don't remember that name, but that doesn't mean that I'm remembering it right. So let's let's check him out and see if he could be a speaker for us. Lead in drinking water. Well, lead's horrible in drinking water. And, and it's one that's very controllable. I mean, I think, does everybody know where lead in drinking water comes from? It comes from solder in pipes. And or in the case or in the case of Flint, it comes from old pipes that were actually made with a metal that included lead. And so metal metallic pipes that had some lead in them and that were very old and that had degraded and that lead was just permeating the drinking water. So thoughts are, it's horrible, we, we can't allow it. And, um, and, it, and it obviously was, was a horrible situation in Flint. And unfortunately, it's probably going on in a lot of other places, um, but we haven't even, either we haven't figured it out yet, we don't know it, we don't know where the problem is, or, we do, and we just haven't done anything about it, but it, it's a horrible issue, and we should get rid of it. It's really that simple. Um, Flint's right down the road here from Detroit. Um, any pro thoughts on the proliferation of microplastics in the air, water, and food supply? It's horrible. That's a bad deal, too. Not, not good at all. We. Uh, should should start to try to use less plastics if possible and certainly we should learn how to, to deal with any plastic waste in a better way that we do um, interestingly and i'm not again at all an expert on microplastics in air i've looked at a lot in water um, but I, I don't, you know, I haven't seen studies. I don't know what the microplastic in air situation is. Uh, it would have to be really, really small particles to be in the air, obviously. Uh, and we have lots of filtration in buildings, and those kinds of things. And I don't know whether that filtration would take out a microplastic in air. I, I've not heard about it as being problematic, but I don't know. Certainly problems in water. And food, you know, you don't want to be ingesting it. Does our gas That's what somebody was saying today. So that's why samplers have to be really careful because they can outgas from their clothing. Uh, okay. 
but it's not the particles, it's outgassing. It's giving gas, something gaseous off. That's a problem. Yeah, I don't know what the definition of outgassing is. Well, outgassing means it's some material letting gas, gaseous materials out. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Again, great, great topic of which we're not really uh, experts on. So um, these animal studies have found that PFOS can cause damage to liver and the immune system. This is Alicia P. And there's, she, she probably cites some studies here. PFOS has also caused low birth weight, birth defects, delayed development, newborn deaths, lab animals. Um, yeah, I, I'm not at all arguing that PFOS is not something that's a problem. What I am arguing is that I almost guarantee that when we look back on what we're doing to deal with it today, 20 years from now, we're going to see that we were probably overreacting. We did something a little inappropriate. That's just been our history. So PFOS has to be removed, has to be analyzed down to levels that almost are, are non-detectable by the kinds of uh, sampling. Uh, analysis methods that we have today, that's problematic. Means um, we either got to get better analytical methods or or we've got to do something different. And I, I don't know, I'm not at all an expert on what different scientific studies have found on the, the, the effects of PFOS on biological beings. Yeah. Um, so Francis asks, are solar panels being used in brownfield? Yes, that's a great point. Um, they are. And uh, specifically landfills, which are brownfield sites, it's a great way to, to, to cover a landfill um, because it, it's not causing any movement or whatever's in it. So there are a number of landfills throughout the country that have solar arrays on them. So uh, a, and, and again, if, if, if a piece of property is so badly contaminated that it cannot be used for any purpose, it's just gotta have a fence put up around it, it would seem that maybe solar panels would be a good use in that kind of an area. There's, there's fewer and fewer of sites that are that contaminated. We don't have some kind of technology to clean them up so they can at least be used for something other than just having a fence around. So, but solar panels are more and more used. So Alicia did weigh in and looked at some research about particles of plastic in the air. And yeah, they'd they have to be very small. Again, not an expert on that at all. I think Larry put in a link about China. Uh, 
China's energy. It's great, thank you. At a remediation talk tomorrow. Yeah. There was a final remediation talk. I don't know if you heard Aaron say that. That we will be able to go to. The problem with this meeting is there are overlapping sessions, so you can't attend all of them. And unfortunately, I don't know why they haven't gotten to this, but they don't record anything. So none of these sessions are going to be available for anybody to go back and listen to. And I don't know why they've not gotten to the point where they can record, but they don't. Solar panels um, add more impervious surfaces that impede rainwater infiltration. Any thoughts? Well, part of the reason that they might be a good thing on a landfill is landfills typically are, are designed to where at the surface, not right at the surface, but maybe a foot below or whatever, there is an impervious surface. The intent is that water wouldn't go through them and get into anything else. So in, in some cases, it could be even much deeper. There's an impervious surface. So again, having a solar panel on top of it wouldn't All right. would actually help with what's going on. You guys want to be on a webinar? Uh, you guys want to be on a webinar? We're, we're, we're out talking to the world here. So you could, you could come and be on. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't think I didn't I didn't think you'd say yes. So. <laughs> some of the some of the people we really need that don't get a lot of credit, the cleaning people were coming by. So I was asking them if they wanted to be on the webinar with us. Uh, so you're actually going to see him. He came right behind me. See, he's cleaning up the stuff that's from behind me, the the, the recycling, which is very cool. Um, this has been a really fun session today, everybody. Um, it's been a lot of your thoughts and not and a lot less of mine. Um, and I'm gonna end with this last thought from Larry here, which is what are your thoughts on renewable ga- natural gas from landfills? Um, recovering methane. Oh, it's, it's a great idea and it's done. Um, it's not done nearly as much and as frequently or as in many locations as it could be. And the place that it's done that I know of, sure, is Southern California. And why Southern California Edison is ahead of the curve, I'm not sure. But I know of even one very specific landfill, the one that's in Palos Verdes, which is a little place out at the edge of the map where California juts out into the ocean, um, where they do recover methane and it is put back into the natural gas pipelines and used for, you know, for power. Um, so, and a lot of landfills that have a lot of human um, waste, which unfortunately we produce way too much of, will produce a lot of methane naturally. And we could recover that with the very, very smart, in my opinion, and, and more and more places are doing it. Aaron and I actually noticed something here that's interesting. Um, on the streets here in Detroit, they vent off through pipes that are coming up, going what, 10 feet up in the air? Steam. And um, 
and I, it's, I, it must be, it's, it's the middle of summer, so I don't know what they're using steam for other than moving it for maybe heat something from a, 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 something being needed to be heated other than the air, because obviously we're not heating the air inside the buildings, we're cooling. But that's being vented. Well, uh, methane can be extracted very easily from, from landfills and either vented into the air, it's actually burned off in some places, which to me is a stupid thing to be doing, or it could be put back into a, a pipeline system and used in combination with other natural methods. Great thought. Well, we are at the top of the hour, and I usually would be more than willing to go longer. If anybody's got any thoughts, I will go ahead and think about them. But we, I said that would be the last one from Larry there. You guys were great tonight. It's so awesome to get thoughts from you that we can just react to, and then all the rest of you can react to, too. So let's try to make sure we do that more often in, in these sessions. Mark, do you have any more thoughts to end us tonight? There, there are a lot of um, research that you know we could be doing on um, a lot of things that people people asked uh, today, like the nuclear power and everything, like how all those things. I think we could you know look into that and see what you know what uh, everybody's thinking and what they're saying. So I think it's a good thing that people bring up these ideas. Yeah. Well, we're going to say goodbye from Detroit and Mark in Bangladesh and all of you around the world. And on replay, there'll be a whole bunch more watching. Take us out, Mark. Bye-bye, everybody. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the East Community Podcast.